Section 16 of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator unknown. Section 16, parts 161 through 170. 161. The morality of the gospel is impracticable. The followers of Christ would have us regard as a miracle the establishment of their religion, which is totally repugnant to nature, opposite to all the propensities of the heart, and inimical to sensual pleasures. But the austerity of a doctrine renders it the more marvelous in the eyes of the vulgar. The same disposition which respects inconceivable mysteries as divine and supernatural admires as divine and supernatural a morality that is impracticable and beyond the powers of man to admire a system of morality and to put it in practice are two very different things all christians admire and extol the morality of the gospel which they do not practice the whole world is more or less infected with the religious morality founded upon the opinion that to please the divinity it is absolutely necessary to render ourselves unhappy upon earth. In all parts of our globe we see penitents, fakirs, and fanatics who seem to have profoundly studied the means of tormenting themselves in honor of a being whose goodness all agree in celebrating. Religion, by its essence, is an enemy to the joy and happiness of men. Blessed are the poor, blessed are they who weep, blessed are they who suffer, misery to those who are in abundance and joy such are the rare discoveries announced by christianity one sixty two a society of saints would be impossible what is a saint in every religion a man who prays and fasts who torments himself and shuns the world who like an owl delights only in solitude abstains from all pleasure and seems frightened of every object which may divert him from his fanatical meditations. Is this virtue? Is a being of this type kind to himself, or useful to others? Would not society be dissolved, and man return to a savage state, if every one were fool enough to be a saint? It is evident that the literal and rigorous practice of the divine morality of the Christians would prove the infallible ruin of nations. A Christian, aiming at perfection, ought to free his mind from whatever can divert it from heaven, his true country. Upon earth he sees nothing but temptations, snares, and rocks of perdition. He must fear science as hurtful to faith. He must avoid industry as a means of obtaining riches too fatal to salvation. He must renounce offices and honors as capable of exciting his pride and calling off his attention from the care of his soul. In a word, the sublime morality of Christ, were it practicable, would break all the bonds of society. A saint in society is as useless as a saint in the desert. His humor is morose, discontented, and often turbulent. His zeal sometimes obliges him in conscience to trouble society by opinions or dreams which his vanity makes him consider as inspirations from on high. The annals of every religion are full of restless saints 
intractable saints, and seditious saints, who have become famous by the ravages with which, for the greater glory of God, they have desolated the universe. If saints who live in retirement are useless, those who live in the world are often very dangerous. The vanity of acting, the desire of appearing illustrious and peculiar in conduct, commonly constitute the distinguishing character of saints. Pride persuades them that they are extraordinary men far above human nature, beings much more perfect than others, favorites whom God regards with much more complacence than the rest of mortals. Humility in a saint is commonly only a more refined pride than that of the generality of men. Nothing but the most ridiculous vanity can induce man to wage continual war against his own nature. 163. Human nature is not depraved. A morality which contradicts the nature of man is not made for man. But, says you, the nature of man is depraved. In what consists this pretended depravity? In having passions? But are not passions essential to man? Is he not obliged to seek, desire, and love what is, or what he thinks is, conducive to his happiness? Is he not forced to fear and avoid what he judges disagreeable or fatal? Kindle his passions for useful objects, connect his welfare with those objects, divert him, by sensible and known motives, from what may injure either him or others, and you will make him a reasonable and virtuous being. A man without passions would be equally indifferent to vice and to virtue. Holy doctors, you are always repeating to us that the nature of man is perverted. You exclaim that all flesh has corrupted its way, that all the propensities of nature have become inordinate. In this case you accuse your God, who was either unable or unwilling, that this nature should preserve its primitive perfection. If this nature is corrupted, why has not God repaired it? The Christian immediately assures us that human nature is repaired, that the death of his God has restored its integrity. How, then, I would ask, do you pretend that human nature, notwithstanding the death of a God, is still depraved? Is, then, the death of your God wholly fruitless? What becomes of his omnipotence and of his victory over the devil, if it is true that the devil still preserves the empire, which, according to you, he has always exercised in the world? According to Christian theology, death is the wages of sin. This opinion is conformable to that of some Negro and savage nations, who imagine that the death of a man is always the supernatural effect of the anger of the gods. Christians firmly believe that Christ has delivered them from sin, though they see that in their religion, as in others, man is subject to death. To say that Jesus Christ has delivered us from sin, is it not to say that a judge has pardoned a criminal while we see that he leaves him for execution? 164. Concerning the Effect of Jesus Christ's Mission if shutting our eyes upon whatever passes in the world, we would credit the partisans of the Christian religion, we should believe that the coming of their divine Savior produced the most wonderful and complete reform in the morals of nations. 
If we examine the morals of Christian nations, and listen to the clamors of their priests, we shall be forced to conclude that Jesus Christ, their God, preached and died in vain. His omnipotent will still finds in men a resistance over which he cannot or will not triumph. The morality of this divine teacher, which his disciples so much admire and so little practice, is followed in a whole century only by half a dozen obscure saints and fanatics and unknown monks who alone will have the glory of shining in the celestial court while all the rest of mortals, though redeemed by the blood of this God, will be the prey of eternal flames. 165. The remission of sins was invented for the interest of priests. When a man is strongly inclined to sin, he thinks very little about his God. Nay, more, whatever crimes he has committed, he always flatters himself that this God will soften, in his favor, the rigor of his decrees. No mortal seriously believes that his conduct can damn him. Though he fears a terrible God, who often makes him tremble, yet, whenever he is strongly tempted, he yields, and he afterwards sees only the God of mercies, the idea of whom calms his apprehensions. If a man commits evil, he hopes he shall have time to reform, and promises to repent at a future day. In religious pharmacy there are infallible prescriptions to quiet consciences. Priests in every country possess sovereign secrets to disarm the anger of heaven. Yet if it be true that the deity is appeased by prayers, offerings, sacrifices, and penances, it can no longer be said that religion is a check to the irregularities of men. They will first sin, and then seek the means to appease God. Every religion which expiates crime and promises a remission of them, if it restrains some persons, encourages the majority to commit evil. Notwithstanding his immutability, God, in every religion, is a true Proteus. His priests represent him at one time armed with severity, at another full of clemency and mildness, sometimes cruel and unmerciful, and sometimes easily melted by the sorrow and tears of sinners. Consequently, men see the divinity only on the side most conformable to their present interests. A god always angry would discourage his worshippers, or throw them into despair. Men must have a god who is both irritable and placable. If his anger frightens some timorous souls, his clemency encourages the resolutely wicked who depend upon recurring, sooner or later, to the means of accommodation. If the judgments of God terrify some faint-hearted pious persons, who by constitution and habit are not prone to evil, the treasures of divine mercy encourage the greatest criminals who have reason to hope they participate therein equally with the others. 166. Who fear God? Most men seldom think of God, or at least bestow on him serious attention. The only ideas we can form of him are so devoid of object, and are at the same time so afflicting, that the only imaginations they can arrest are those of melancholy hypochondriacs who do not constitute the majority of the inhabitants of this world. 
The vulgar have no conception of God. Their weak brains are confused whenever they think of him. The man of business thinks only of his business, the courtier of his intrigues, men of fashion, women, and young people of their pleasures. Dissipation soon effaces in them all the fatiguing notions of religion. The ambitious man, the miser and the debauchee, carefully avoid speculations too feeble to counterbalance their various passions. Who is awed by the idea of a god? A few enfeebled men, morose and disgusted with the world. A few in whom the passions are already deadened by age, by infirmity, or by the strokes of fortune. Religion is a check to those alone who, by their state of mind and body, or by fortuitous circumstances, have been already brought to reason. The fear of God hinders from sin only those who are not much inclined to it, or else those who are no longer able to commit it. To tell men that the deity punishes crimes in this world is to advance an assertion which experience every moment contradicts. The worst of men are commonly the arbiters of the world, and are those whom fortune loads with her favors. To refer us to another life, in order to convince us of the judgments of God, is to refer us to conjectures in order to destroy facts which cannot be doubted. 167. Hell is an absurd invention. Nobody thinks of the life to come when he is strongly smitten with the objects he finds here below. In the eyes of a passionate lover, the presence of his mistress extinguishes the flames of hell and her charms efface all the pleasures of paradise. Woman, you leave, say you, your lover for your God. This is either because your lover is no longer the same in your eyes, or because he leaves you. Nothing is more common than to see ambitious, perverse, corrupt, and immoral men who have some ideas of religion, and sometimes appear even zealous for its interest. If they do not practice it at present, they hope to in the future. They lay it up as a remedy which will be necessary to salve the conscience for the evil they intend to commit. Besides, the party of devotees and priests being very numerous, active, and powerful, is it not astonishing that rogues and knaves seek its support to attain their ends? It will undoubtedly be said that many honest people are sincerely religious, and that without profit, but is uprightness of heart always accompanied with knowledge? It is urged that many learned men, many men of genius, have been strongly attached to religion. This proves that men of genius may have prejudices, be pusillanimous and have an imagination which misleads them and prevents them from examining subjects coolly. Pascal proves nothing in favor of religion, unless that a man of genius may be foolish on some subjects and is but a child when he is weak enough to listen to his prejudices. Pascal himself tells us that the mind may be strong and contracted, enlarged and weak. He previously observes that a man may have a sound mind and not understand every subject equally well, for there are some who, having a sound judgment in a certain order of things, are bewildered in others. 168. 
the bad foundation of religious morals. What is virtue according to theology? It is, we are told, the conformity of the actions of man to the will of God. But what is God? A being of whom nobody has the least conception, and whom everyone consequently modifies in his own way. What is the will of God? It is what men who have seen God, or whom God has inspired, have declared to be the will of God. Who are those who have seen God? They are either fanatics or rogues or ambitious men whom we cannot believe. To found morality upon a God whom every man paints to himself differently, composes in his way, and arranges according to his own temperament and interest, is evidently to found morality upon the caprice and imagination of men. It is to found it upon the whims of a sect, a faction, a party, who believe they have the advantage to adore a true God to the exclusion of all others. To establish morality or the duties of man upon the divine will is to found it upon the will, the reveries, and the interests of those who make God speak without ever fearing that he will contradict them. In every religion, priests alone have a right to decide what is pleasing or displeasing to their God, and we are certain they will always decide that it is what pleases or displeases themselves. The dogmas, the ceremonies, the morals, and the virtues prescribed by every religion are visibly calculated only to extend the power or augment the emoluments of the founders and ministers of these religions. The dogmas are obscure, inconceivable, frightful, and are therefore well calculated to bewilder the imagination and to render the vulgar more obsequious to the will of those who wish to domineer over them. The ceremonies and practices procure the priests riches or respect. Religion consists in a submissive faith, which prohibits the exercise of reason, in a devout humility, which ensures priests the submission of their slaves, in an ardent zeal when religion, that is, when the interest of these priests, is in danger. The only object of all religions is evidently the advantage of its ministers. 169. CHRISTIAN CHARITY AS PREACHED AND PRACTICED BY THEOLOGIANS When we approach theologians with the barrenness of their divine virtues, they emphatically extol charity, that tender love of one's neighbor, which Christianity makes an essential duty of its disciples. But, alas, what becomes of this pretended charity when we examine the conduct of the ministers of the Lord? Ask them whether we must love or do good to our neighbor if he be an impious man, a heretic, or an infidel, that is, if he do not think like them. Ask them whether we must tolerate opinions contrary to those of the religion they profess. Ask them whether the sovereign can show indulgence to those who are in error. Their charity instantly disappears, and the established clergy will tell you that the prince bears the sword only to support the cause of the Most High. They will tell you that through love of our neighbor we must prosecute, imprison, exile, and burn him. You will find no toleration except among a few priests 
persecuted themselves, who will lay aside Christian charity the instant they have power to persecute in their turn. The Christian religion, in its origin, preached by beggars and miserable men, under the name of charity, strongly recommends alms. The religion of Mahomet also enjoins it as an indispensable duty. Nothing undoubtedly is more conformable to humanity than to succor the unfortunate, to clothe the naked, to extend the hand of beneficence to everyone in distress. But would it not be more humane and charitable to prevent the source of misery and poverty? If religion, instead of deifying princes, had taught them to respect the property of their subjects, to be just, to exercise only their lawful rights, we should not be shocked by the sight of such a multitude of beggars. A rapacious, unjust, tyrannical government multiplies misery. Heavy taxes produce discouragement, sloth, and poverty which in their turn beget robberies, assassinations, and crimes of every description. Had sovereigns more humanity, charity, and equity, their dominions would not be peopled by so many wretches whose misery it becomes impossible to alleviate. Christian and Mohammedan states are full of large hospitals, richly endowed, in which we admire the pious charity of the kings and sultans who erected them, but would it not have been more humane to govern the people justly, to render them happy, to excite and favor industry and commerce, and to let men enjoy in safety the fruit of their labors, than to crush them under a despotic yoke, to impoverish them by foolish wars, to reduce them to beggary in order that luxury may be satisfied, and then to erect splendid buildings which can contain but a very small portion of those who have been rendered miserable? Religion has only deluded men. Instead of preventing evils, it always applies ineffectual remedies. The ministers of heaven have always known how to profit by the calamities of others. Public misery is their element. They have everywhere become administrators of the property of the poor, distributors of alms, depositaries of charitable donations and thereby they have at all times extended and supported their power over the unhappy, who generally compose the most numerous, restless, and seditious part of society. Thus the greatest evils turn to the profit of the ministers of the Lord. Christian priests tell us that the property they possess is the property of the poor, and that it is therefore sacred. Consequently, they have eagerly accumulated lands, revenues, and treasures. Under color of charity, spiritual guides have become extremely opulent, and in the face of impoverished nations enjoy wealth which was destined solely for the unfortunate, while the latter, far from murmuring, applaud a pious generosity which enriches the church, but rarely contributes to the relief of the poor. According to the principles of Christianity, poverty itself is a virtue. Indeed, it is the virtue which sovereigns and priests oblige their slaves to observe most rigorously. With this idea, many pious Christians have of their own accord renounced riches, distributed their patrimony among the poor, and retired into deserts, there to live in voluntary indigence. 
but this enthusiasm, this supernatural taste for misery, has been soon forced to yield to nature. The successors of these volunteers in poverty sold to the devout people their prayers and their intercessions with the deity. They became rich and powerful. Thus monks and hermits lived in indolence and under color of charity impudently devoured the substance of the poor. The species of poverty most esteemed by religion is poverty of mind. The fundamental virtue of every religion most useful to its ministers is faith. It consists in unbounded credulity which admits without inquiry whatever the interpreters of the deity are interested in making men believe. By the aid of this wonderful virtue, priests became the arbiters of right and wrong, of good and evil. They could easily cause the commission of crimes to advance their interest. Implicit faith has been the source of the greatest outrages that have been committed. 170. Confession, Priestcraft's Gold Mine. He who first taught nations that, when we wrong man, we must ask pardon of God, appease him by presence, and offer him sacrifices, evidently destroyed the true principles of morality. According to such ideas, many persons imagine that they may obtain of the king of heaven, as of kings of the earth, permission to be unjust and wicked, or may at least obtain pardon for the evil they may commit. Morality is founded upon the relations, wants, and constant interests of mankind. The relations which subsist between God and men are either perfectly unknown or imaginary. Religion, by associating God with man, has wisely weakened or destroyed the bonds which unite them. Mortals imagine they may injure one another with impunity by making suitable satisfaction to the Almighty Being who is supposed to have the right of remitting all offenses committed against his creatures. Is anything better calculated to encourage the wicked or harden them in crimes than to persuade them that there exists an invisible being who has a right to forgive acts of injustice, rapine, and outrage committed against society? By these destructive ideas, perverse men perpetrate the most horrid crimes and believe they make reparation by imploring divine mercy. Their conscience is at rest when a priest assures them that heaven is disarmed by a repentance, which, though sincere, is very useless to the world. In the mind of a devout man, God must be regarded more than his creatures. It is better to obey him than men. The interests of the celestial monarch must prevail over those of weak mortals. But the interests of heaven are obviously those of its ministers. Whence it evidently follows that in every religion priests, under pretext of the interests of heaven or the glory of God, can dispense with the duties of human morality when they clash with the duties which God has a right to impose. Besides, must not he who has power to pardon crimes have a right to encourage the commission of crimes? End of section 16 Recording by Roger Moline